0: you please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord that is holy, inerrant, and sufficient. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would bless us through Your Word this morning, that You would help us to know You better, To serve you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's a common practice for us to remember dates and ages with events. If you talk to any mother, for example, who has grown children, and you ask her, well, what year did such and such happen? You're likely to get a response that goes something like this. Well, let's see. Johnny was 10 when that happened, and that means it was X year. Men do this too. Sometimes we men do it with less momentous events. Well, let's see. That year... I was driving a 63 Chevy. Children do it too. That was the year that my first tooth fell out. We peg events to let us know where we are in the journey of life. But that doesn't just happen for us as people as we walk down this journey of life. It's something that happens for the entire universe, Paul says. You see, you can peg just about anything that's happened in the world based on one event. And Paul talks about it for us this morning. It's God's kind providence that as we come to this season of year, that we are at this passage at the beginning of chapter 4. We're going to look at the event that puts every other event into place, events that are past events that are future, and that is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in the context of encouraging the Galatians that they are not slaves, but now they are sons, sons of God, and that brings with it blessings. And so I would like us to see three things this morning from our text. The first thing I would like us to see is a world expectant, a world that is waiting for something to happen. A world expectant. And then we'll see the sun is sent. The sun is sent. An event that changes forever the history of the universe. And then finally, we're going to look at the reason for the advent. A world expectant, the sun sent, and the reason for the advent. You've heard it said perhaps over and over again that there is a reason for the season but it's much more than that. There is a reason that the son was sent and came. So let us go to the scriptures this morning and see what the Lord will teach us through the ministry of Paul, beginning here in verse 1. Paul begins and he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. We see here a world that is expectant. And It's waiting for something, and in Paul's analogy here, it's waiting for an inheritance. This section begins, Paul uses language to let us know that he is giving us yet another illustration of the principle that he has been describing of the state of the world, and especially the church, before the coming of the Messiah. If you read through Galatians, it's impossible, as we've seen, not to see that Paul was the consummate pastor. He's constantly illustrating and applying the truth of God's word to his congregation here in Galatia. And he says, well, I've told you a lot about the law and the promise and Abraham and works. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. I mean it like this. And he says, is that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. So he is the owner of everything. He's describing what life was like for the church before the promise was fulfilled. You recall we looked at that in verses 15 through 26 of the last chapter. But he's also describing it for that congregation, those Galatians, those men and women and children who were sitting listening to this letter being read because they needed to be reminded what life was like before their lives were changed. We saw that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is a waiting, and expectation for a climactic event. And so the question immediately comes to us, is this is how we come to the Lord Jesus Christ? When we think of Him, especially at this time of year, do we think of the Lord Jesus Christ as the person and the arrival that changes Everything that we were waiting for, that we can't do without. That we are like an heir. When we're a child, we're no different from a slave. But now that the fullness has come, we experience the reality. You see, Paul says this is like a son waiting for his inheritance or to come into his own He says there is a reality there. Notice what verse 1 says, or excuse me, verse 2 says, he is owner of everything, even though he's a child. The Greek is actually even a bit stronger than that, than most translations. He's actually the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all that he surveys in his home. He doesn't have it in his present possession, but he has title to it. He is the Lord, or as some have put it, the young master of the house, waiting to come into his inheritance. We might think of it this way in modern parlance, that the heir, so long as there is a trust fund in the bank that he cannot get to until he turns 18, is the Lord of that money, but he can't get at any of it to practically enjoy it. There is a difference. He's treated in a sense, like a slave. He's under guardians and authorities. He is a child who is under authority. You recall we spoke about that a few weeks ago when we talked about the law being like a tutor to us, to lead us to Christ. That's what life was like before Christ came. Israel especially is a picture of that, the early church. Israel was waiting for the coming Messiah. It was the church in its infancy, The church as a child, it was in possession, or excuse me, it had title to salvation, but it was not in possession of the promises. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. The redemption had not been accomplished. And so this child is under authority. He is under stewards or guardians or home governors or managers. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I spoke as a child. But he said, it came a time when I put away childish things. That happens for the church and the law and the coming of the Messiah. This is a temporary thing, and the child must wait upon the father. Notice that this time does not continue on forever. The heir, as long as he is a child... It's only during a period of time that is circumscribed. There's a plan here in mind. We see that clearly because he is in this state until what? The date that is set by his father. It's not open-ended. There is a period of time in which the heir does not have full enjoyment of the blessings of his inheritance. But there is an event coming that is going to change that and give him a present possession. But it's not just that he is waiting for his inheritance, he's also waiting for freedom. Notice what Paul says here in verse 3, applying it to us. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if you've looked through this verse, perhaps you've done it in some seasonal readings for Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. You may be confused by this, and that's easy to have happen to you because this is not an easy verse. What are these elementary principles? What does it mean? And there's a, a large debate that rages back and forth between commentators trying to dig up every little nugget they can and every extra biblical source to figure out what this means. But I think as usual. We should take the approach that we've been taking as we go through the scriptures, and that is if something's confusing, we simply take it at face value and we look to other scriptures to make it clear. So what's going on here? Well, we see it here in the the range of a child as opposed to an adult, under guardians, under schoolmasters. And this word for elementary principles is used oftentimes to describe things like ABCs. Multiplication tables, right? Before you can learn to read, children, what do you need to learn to do? You need to learn your alphabet. And so you go through elementary principles. Usually it begins with a song, right? All those of you that are adults haven't forgotten it. I've just said that, and perhaps it's running through your mind now. Then you learn to write those letters out one by one, perhaps beginning with the capitals, then moving to lowercase letters. And you do that as a building block to reading and writing. It's an elementary principle. You see, that is what Paul is saying here. He's comparing that to the period of the law. It's sort of this simple. The Judaizers talked about the law as if it was graduate school. If you really want to be a Christian, Then you'll get circumcised. And you'll know the law backwards and forwards. So when I say, how much do you have to give back for a stolen lamb? Everybody jumps up giving the right answer. But you see, Paul says, this isn't graduate school. This isn't PhD work. This is kindergarten. This is grade school. This is the way God dealt with people preparing them for the event to come that's not the end-all be-all. It was something preparing us for higher levels to do things that are more important, leading up to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might think of it in terms of the Old Testament laws being like a school to prepare the church for the fulfillment of the gospel. Hebrews puts it like this, that Dealing with food and drink and various washings were regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told explicitly to go beyond these things in Hebrews 5. That we need to go beyond the basic principles, same word, of the oracles of God. Because we need to have solid food. But now we can't do that, the author of Hebrews says. So we need milk. We need these basic principles. But Paul says this is temporary. This is a part on the journey. It's not the destination. The question then comes to us. Would you consider it progress if you went back to grade school? I'm sure you'd be very good at it, wouldn't you? If they had spelling drills, you'd probably leave all the kids in the dust. Adults, right? I bet you you'd win every math drill, right? But would you really be accomplishing anything? You see, that's what reliance upon the law is like. We can pretend we're accomplishing something, but really we've made a point on the journey, the end. It makes us spiritually immature. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. but as as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Same word as in chapter 4, verse 1. The child. Infants. You see, it's not the ideal or the goal. Because we're waiting for freedom. Notice that Paul describes it as enslavement to these elementary principles. We get bound up in them. So much so that one of the ways to translate this elementary principles is also perhaps that it is dealing with forces or powers of the world, perhaps even demons. And we can see the connection here, that we can make the law the power of the devil in our life. Because if all we have is the law, the devil makes hay accusing us. All you have to do is open up to any section of the law and you'll see very clearly, you don't measure up. Your life is miserable that you shouldn't have advice for anyone, that you shouldn't be able to help anyone, that you completely don't have it together. But you see, we don't stop there. We don't let the demons and the devil have power over us through the law, because Christ has broken the power of the law. He's broken the curse, as we'll see in just a minute. This is the world that is waiting for the event. And the event is the sending of the Son. Look with me here at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This may be a very familiar verse to you. As we've said, it can be put on Christmas cards, it's used Especially at this time of the season. But let's look at this and see what Paul is really saying here in the pieces of it. The first thing we see is that Paul is describing this event occurring at the right time. He says this occurred at the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, that's when God sent His Son. You see, God is not waiting to see what happens in the world. God is not surprised. God doesn't have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. God is sovereign and in charge. And at just the exact right moment, he sent his son. Not too early, not too late. At the perfect time. You see, it's because God knew, first and foremost, that it was the right time. The early church recognized this. How did they do this? Have you ever thought about the fact that all of history is divided and referenced by this event? B.C., before Christ, A.D., not after death, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. All of history is defined by this single event. Of course the world hates it, and that's why in colleges they're trying to change things to B.C.E., before common era, and C.E., common era, because they can't stand to see history referenced with respect to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, we might even say that time itself exists for this purpose, for the coming of the Son, because when time had been fulfilled That was when the Lord came. It's the same principle that we see in Romans 13, where Paul tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. Same word. The coming is the fulfillment of time. You see, the purpose of the law is love. And the purpose of time is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is indeed a monumental event, no matter what the ACLU may say no matter what the card makers may say, no matter what is on television or in the movies, they cannot change the fact that this is the consummate event in the history of mankind. We can see practically that the time was right too. If we think a bit back, we see that the world was ready at this point for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we think again about the Lord as purposing and planning things, have you thought about the fact that it was exactly at this time that there was peace throughout all Europe, the Near East, and Palestine. It was the height of the Roman peace. Have you thought about the fact that it was at this time that roads had been laid that still exist today that could take missionaries from Israel to Spain, to Greece, to Italy, to North Africa? The Romans had built an incredible infrastructure. There was safety, relatively speaking, in travel. Have you also thought about the fact that there was, for the most part, a common language throughout all of the Roman Empire? Almost everyone spoke Greek. And if you didn't have Greek, you could probably get away with Latin. Almost everyone spoke that language from Spain over to Turkey. Everywhere a language how critical is that for god's purpose through his word we also see that this is the time in which there are synagogues all throughout the roman empire because the jews had been dispersed the book of acts is full of paul going from city to city to city to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue you see The Lord had prepared all these things just as he had prepared every minute detail down to the name and family of the woman that would bear the Lord Jesus Christ. He prepared an empire for the spread of his gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that it was the time to be sent as well. Our Lord was very cognizant of time. You recall throughout the Gospels, he's constantly saying, My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. You remember the incident at the wedding at Cana. He says to his mother, My hour has not yet come. Some people come to arrest him, but they can't because, the Scriptures say, His hour had not yet come. But when his hour had come, he knew it, John 13. And he went and did the will of the Father. We might recall the parable of the tenants in Mark 12. You know where the landholder sends messenger after messenger and the tenants rob them and kill them and abuse them. And he says, at the last, at the very fulfillment, I will send my beloved son. So it is with God sending his son. But it's not just the right time, you see, because Jesus is exactly the right person. We need to especially think about that this time of year. You see, Jesus is the right person with the right work. You cannot separate them. Who is Jesus? Well, first, he is God. Look at what Paul says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. He was God of God, light of light. He was already the Son. He was sent as the Son. He did not become the Son. He did not take something upon Himself in mission simply by being in a manger and being born. No, He was always God's Son. He was God Himself. He is God from eternity. Only by being God could He do the work that was laid out for Him. Only by being divine could he accomplish his mission. Only God could die for sins. And you see, that is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Do you think about that at this time of year? You see, it's easy to get wrapped up in the cute baby and the sheep and the goats and the cow and all in the manger scene that Just coincidentally enough, never make any noise and don't smell and look perfect. But you see, the one who comes into this world is God, as Isaiah says, the everlasting Father. That is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is God, but he is more, for he is the God-man. Look at what Paul says. He is born of woman. This is a phrase used in the Old Testament and throughout the Hebrew culture to mean a person, a man. Like us, we might even say. Job puts it this way. What is man that he could be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? How then can man be right?" before God how can he who is born of a woman be pure and the answer of course is found in the gospel because Jesus is not only God but he is man he is born of a woman and yet he is pure and yet he is righteous this text doesn't explicitly tell us that Jesus was born of a virgin but it does say it's born he was born of a woman and we know Paul's companion on missionary journeys was a doctor by the name of Luke. I'm sure as they walked from town to town or sat up late at night by the fire, they did what many of you do when you're together. They talked about the Bible and they talked about the things of God. We had this happen to us all the time. I just had that happen to me this week. I had a conversation that probably could have been a certain amount in length and it about doubled because something would come up and we'd start talking about the scriptures. And I'm sure that Paul and Luke spoke and Luke tells us explicitly in chapter one, verse 34 and 35, that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus is God and he is man, but notice that he is humble and lowly. He's not the king that was expected because no one expected him to come in this fashion as a child in a low estate. Think of how the Lord Jesus identified with us, took upon our our nature. In this coming year, as you face difficulties, as you think to yourself, No one can understand the rock I'm up against. Think of the Lord who was king of the universe that did not even have a home to be born in. When you think we just can't make ends meet, think of the Lord who was a workman's son and worked hard, And never had a place to lay his head. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ did not come with riches and trapping and power. He came like us. And so, the gospel is not about us needing to be rich and successful and to have things and be big. The gospel is about looking to the one who entered our existence who came for us. And this is where the Christmas story, I think, helps us. To remind us of the low estate that our Savior was born in. There's also the right work for the Lord Jesus Christ to do. Notice that He is not only sent forth by God, He is not only born of woman, but He is born under the law. This is an important phrase for Paul. It reminds us of the covenant of works. It reminds us that we are under the law apart from Christ. That we must do, you remember Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3, and we must do everything. What Paul says is that Jesus was born under that law. And that he did everything. He wasn't angry without a cause, once. He never had a lustful thought. He never dishonored his parents. He never stole from anyone. He was always generous. He was always truthful. He never wanted something that was not his. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ was born under this incredibly minute expansive law. And he kept it all. Perfect obedience. But there's another aspect of this as well that Paul's reminding us of. If you remember in verse 13 of chapter 3, it was said that Christ became a curse for us. You see, this child was born under the law that he might bear the penalty that was due to us. You see, you cannot separate the cross from the manger. You can't. Go walk outside. The world is trying to do it right now. But you see, Paul says, you can't. Part of being born of a woman is being born under the law. And why was he born under the law? So that he might keep it. And so that we might be redeemed. As if we didn't get the picture, he gives us two purpose clauses. He tells us, thirdly and finally, what the reason for the coming is. He says, he was born under the law. He was born of a woman. To redeem. To redeem those that were under the law. And so that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, he begins with the negative reason. We need redemption. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're not just in trouble. We're not just looking at a deficit situation. There's not just trouble out on the horizon. We have earned and fully paid for hell and damnation. We are deserving of death. But you see, Jesus Christ comes to redeem his people, to buy them back. This word has a rich imagery. It's one who goes into the slave marketplace and pays for the slave, that the slave might be free, so that no one might have any hold on him ever again. That's what our Lord does. He says to the law, this one is mine. You cannot condemn him. You cannot condemn her. They are mine. That is why the Lord Jesus Christ came. It's not just a rescue. It's a freedom. Jesus Christ came, Christian, to set you free, to give you freedom from bondage, from the yoke of slavery, from the yoke of waiting. And here we see the centrality of the cross in the Christmas story. Phil Reichen puts it this way. He says, oftentimes, the cross does not get the emphasis that the manger does because it's more threatening. But he says, Christianity is not a religion of a stable and straw but of thorns and nails, wood and blood. You see, there would be no Easter without Christmas. But the reason for Christmas is Easter. You cannot separate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This work is redemption. That is the reason why He is sent. But He's also sent positively that we might be adopted so that we might receive the adoption as sons. see, it's not just that we might have our sins forgiven, it's so that we might be brought into a family. That's something also that we can relate to at this time of year. I'm looking out and seeing people that I don't know. Because some of you are blessed enough to have relatives and friends coming and visiting and being with you at this time of year. But you see, the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ came is so that we might be a family. An eternal family. The people of God adopted as sons of God that we might receive an inheritance. And sons, true sons, don't fear. You see, the servant fears that his master will not be satisfied with his work because his relationship to his master is based on his work everything is done out of fear and duty. But sons do not. They do for love. Knowing they are accepted. Knowing they are brought near. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ came. Not just so that we might be forgiven, but that we might know freedom from fear and from duty. We are redeemed by this one who was sent. We are adopted into the family of God. And the reason for this, Paul finishes, describes the relationship that we have with God because Christ has come. Notice what he says in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, Paul reminds the Galatians that they have the Holy Spirit. He mentioned that at the beginning of chapter 3. And he says that this is a pledge from God that you are His. The fact that you have the Spirit doesn't just tell you that your sins are forgiven, it tells you you are a child of God. The Spirit is a pledge. He puts it another way in Romans 8 and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, God doesn't just want to save us. He wants us to know we are saved. He doesn't just want to adopt us. He wants us to know we are his children. Look at how Paul ends this. He says, if you are a son, then an heir through God. It's an odd turn of phrase that Paul uses. Every place else in the scriptures that he uses this phrase, there's one little word inserted. Through the will of God. So much so that some commentators even say that perhaps there's a scribal error here. Perhaps Paul's using shorthand. The point is, is that the son was sent that we might be adopted because that was God's will. God's will for the Christian is that he or she know that they are a child of God. And this brings about a personal connection This knowledge gives us a personal connection in our relationship. Notice the way that Paul uses very emphatic, very emotional words here at the end of this passage. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit is sent into our hearts, into the very core of our being. You see, we cannot be detached from God, from Jesus, and from the Spirit. If you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would have the forgiveness of sins, if you would be a child of God, the Spirit of Christ is in your heart. It draws you to the Father. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead that binds us together to the triune God. And notice that this is not a detached relationship We cry out. We don't just say. We cry out, Abba, Father. The picture here is, you may recall the image that when Jesus is at a festival, as described in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he's looking around and seeing so many lost people, and he cries out, If anyone is thirsty, come to me, so that many could hear. That is what the Spirit does for us. It wells up in us a love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and what they have done that we cry out. And we cry out in an intimate way. We say, Abba, Father. Now, many, and you probably even have heard this, will take this and say that Abba is baby talk. It's Dada or Daddy or something like that. That's what they call fanciful exegesis. It's not baby talk. But it is intimate talk. It doesn't have to be dad-dad. We don't have to be infantile. But it is dad. Perhaps in your family, it's pop. It could even be in your family that it's father. But you know when it's used. And it's intimacy, don't you? You know the difference, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus actually starts this for us. He is the first one to use Abba Father in the scriptures. And He comes that we might be like Him. And the Spirit transforms us into His image so that, like Jesus Christ, we might say Abba Father, to be intimate, to be bold. And notice how Paul finishes here. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This relationship that we have with God because of the work and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something hidden here in this verse. And it's not because the translation is bad, probably... All of the other major major translations have the same thing. We lose a little touch here because English has failed us. We have to go back to our old King James. Because it's not, for you are a son. It's thou art. You. Singular. Paul does something amazing here. He goes from the general and the group and the corporate, and he speaks to each individual believer in Galatia and in Katy, Texas. And he says, because Jesus Christ has come, you're no longer a slave. Don't think like a slave. You're no longer a slave. Don't be afraid. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are loved and accepted. You have an inheritance. You have the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done. It's not for the person down the aisle from you. It's not for the person sitting in front of you. It's for you. You see, the work of Jesus Christ is so expansive that it is cosmic in its performance. A.D. B.C. And yet, it deals with the smallest of us. On an individual basis. As we continue to think on this passage this day, I would invite you to think on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. The fact that we need no longer wait. Because the Father has sent the Son. The cosmic event has happened. The Spirit is in our hearts. And we have an intimacy with the Father. And we can also think that because of that, we are sent by the Father out to minister because the Father's sending doesn't end with the Son. You see, Matthew 28 comes after Matthew 1. And now we as sons of God are also sent out to tell the good news of God's perfect time, the perfect person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his perfect work. This is our message. That is the Christmas story. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have sent forth Your Son. We thank You, O Lord, that You have blessed us and that You remind us of this in Your Word in so many places. We ask that You would give us words to bring to a lost world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.